is well. It is well with my soul. Those who are in Christ can say that, can't they? And know that. And it is a reality. And it is truth. And for that we rejoice and are exceedingly comforted. Take your Bibles and turn to the the second chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 2. As we continue in Paul's argument, if you will, or our case that he's laying for the fact that all men everywhere, apart from Christ, are under the judgment of God, under literally the wrath of God, uh, under his continuous judgment, being poured out even now, Paul says, not just in the final day when the absolute wrath, wrath of God will be seen, but even now it's being poured out on those who reject Christ, those who refuse to acknowledge the gospel, those who refuse to follow, those, that that's just a reality. Now, a lot of people wanted to argue about that in Paul's day. And a lot of people want to argue about that in our day. A lot of people want to say, you know, that it just can't be that God would ever judge anything or judge anyone or have any kind of wrath toward anybody. He just would not do that. God is all love. God is all patience. God is just all kindness. God is everything we think about a a grandfather being. But he's not a grandfather. He's a father who loves and a father who cares, but he's also a holy, righteous God. And so Paul says, I want you to understand that that is absolutely necessary to understand if we're going to understand the essence of the gospel. So last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11 in in chapter 2, and we saw there that that those who are moralists, whether they be Gentile moralists, whether they be Stoic moralists, or whether they be uh, religious Jewish moralists, the moralists have no standing before God. They can't even live up to their own standard. They might say, I believe that you ought to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but at the same time, you don't do unto others the way you want them to do unto you. You want them to do unto you the way you want to be done unto. That's basically what Paul is saying. You can't even live up to your own standard. In this passage, he gets a little more specific with the, with the Jewish moralist the Jewish religionist. And he shows that morality cannot save, no matter how hard you try and how moral you want to be. And then he shows that religion by itself cannot save. You you can be very religious, you can go through all the motions, you can do all all the right things ritually, but that will not save you apart from, from, from the work of Christ in your life. You'll get into all that specifically in chapter 3. But hear what the Apostle says, starting in verse 12 of Romans chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. In other words, just because they didn't get the law, they're not not disqualified. They're not given a free pass because they're without the law. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That is, it's in their conscience, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them in this law that is unto themselves. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if, you're a call, but, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that yourself are, are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, that's quite a statement. You boast in all this, you know all this, you call yourself this. But then in verse 21, and then you teach others, you who teach others, do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, you steal. Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They're quoting Ezekiel 36, 20. And he goes on. He says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will, he not, be, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have a written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now hear this last statement. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but his praise from God. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul is basically interested here, and this is a broad overview. We're going to talk about more specifics later, but, but, but today is a broad overview along last week's first part of chapter 2. And the broad overview is, is that there are some people who say because we have something and we know about something and we, we possess something at least outwardly and in our hands, then we must be right with God. Here he's talking about the Jews. He he goes on and he says here the Jews have all sorts of benefits. They have all sorts of of benefits in their life. They they, they call themselves a Jew. They rely on the law. They brag about their relationship with God. They know his will and approve what is superior. They're instructed by the law. They are, are convinced that they are a guide to the blind. I mean, Paul says, understand this. If a person is in the nation of Israel... That is that they are a Jew, 
By their very birth, they have been given certain privileges. They have been given certain blessings because they sit under those authoritative things every single day. Every time they go to the temple, every time they go to synagogue, they sit and they listen. But, but Paul is wanting to see here that if one merely sits and listens and does not apply that which is taught and that which is said, you can say all day, I have a Bible. I have the Word of God. I carry it with me everywhere I go. I have it on my coffee table. I have it on my bedside table. I ha- have it on my uh, wherever I put. Well, I've got most Americans have five, six, seven, ten Bibles in their house. I've got Bibles everywhere. Doesn't that make me a believer? Doesn't that make me right with God? Paul would say, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with your relationship with God because the, the question is not whether you have it in possession in your hands. The, the question is whether you have it in possession in your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my, Jones, one of my heroes, pastor of the last generation in England at Westminster Chapel, not Westminster Abbey, Westminster Chapel, And Lloyd-Jones said this, he said, as you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? And as you read, do you say to yourself, this is me. What is this saying about me? Well, John says, allow the Scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very, very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. It's an interesting statement. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in these verses. The Jews say, we've got the law, we've, got, we, we've had the prophets instructing us, we've had the, the, the rabbis and the priests instructing us, and because we have that, we're a guide to the blind. We can point to those Gentiles and say, you're living in sin. You are an idolater. You commit adultery. You steal. You, you do all these things that, that God is totally abhorrent to, and, and you ought to not do that. Paul says, when you look at other people and say, you do this and you do that and point it out to them, you try to be a guide to the blind, you try to be a teacher to the children and a teacher to the blind, uh, uh, to lead them alone. Are, are you just saying to them, this is how you are, or are you saying, you know, this is cutting at my heart too? Paul says, there's some of you who, who say all this and, and you just do not teach yourself. You preach against stealing, but you steal. You're dishonest. You you. you you would never go rob a bank. You would never go and say, I'm going to steal something intentionally maybe, but, but maybe you cheat on your income taxes. Maybe you cheat in business dealings. Maybe you shortcut things, and, and because of that, you get some benefit from it, and you, you rationalize it. Well, it's okay to do that because nobody's really hurt very badly. Paul said, don't you understand? If you, if you steal at all, you can tell others not to steal. But if you're stealing, you're, you're seeing that the law is not internalized in your life. The law is not real to you. 
It's merely an external matter. Or are you who say you must not commit adultery? That's horrible. Do you commit adultery? Now, understand that in Scripture, adultery, we know what that means. We know it's a, a violation or a breaking of the marriage vows, a, 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 a dishonoring the marriage vows. But understand, in the Old Testament, clearly there were two types of adultery. There was physical adultery between a husband and a wife, but there was also spiritual adultery, turning your backs on the true and the living God to pursue after other things. Francis Schaeffer said often that the, the Christian church in America is one of the most adulterous organizations around. And he wasn't talking about marriage. He was talking about not being faithful to the one who has called them, not being faithful to the one who has redeemed them, not being faithful in their spiritual walk. But they chase after other gods. They chase after other idols. And, and we say, well, we don't have any temples. We don't have any idols around us. And he said, and Francis Schaeffer said, oh, but what do you love the most? What do you pursue the most? Are you pursuing Christ more than anything else? Or are you pursuing what's to your advantage? It could be considered adultery. And you say to others, don't commit adultery, and then you find yourself doing the same thing. Or, or Paul says even further, said, you know, you, 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 you say you abhor idols. I hate idols. Do you rob temples? It's an interesting statement there that, that the Apostle Paul says. Do you abhor, do you hate, do you have a disdain for idols in your thought processes and in, in what you would say? But at the same time, do you rob temples? Do you, do you take things from uh, that belong to the idolatrous world and, and use them again for your benefit? Do you, do you take things from idolatry and say oh but I don't I don't worship this I don't believe in this but it is a nice thing to, or, or in their day did you did you take things from idol temples and in order to make a profit did you t sell them to someone who does worship them you may not believe in it but you find yourself in situations that are just totally contrary to God's word Paul says I want you to know that if you claim to be a blind to the guy, uh, excuse me, a guide to the blind, if you claim to be one who is a teacher, if you claim to be one who knows the truth for everybody else, but never applies the truth to yourself, Paul would say you need to examine. You need to examine your own life. You need to examine your own heart. You need to say what is it that's taking place here, Paul talks about here in verse 24 he says this is what is written by Ezekiel the prophet one of your own prophets one who one who cared about the integrity and the holiness of God among his people he said the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles why because of you because of the religious not not because that you're religious not because of the pagan but, but blasphemed among the Gentiles because of those Jewish professors who say, we are, we are God's people, we have God's law, we have God's truth. And yet their own lives do not reflect it in any way. Who, who don't practice what the Apostle Paul said in this passage and what Lord Jones said, you know, as you read your Bible, do you apply that truth to yourself? Is it first and foremost 
Lord, what is this word saying to me? Or do we read the scripture saying, as we could easily do in chapter 1, we talked about that, we read the scripture saying, oh yeah, boy, that's bad with those people out there. Paul says scripture is written to God's people. Yes, for truth, for discernment in the world, but it's written for God's people to examine and determine in their own life, what is it that God is saying? I ask in the, in the grace, in, in the faith talk this morning, so in your bulletin, you can, uh, you can look at that later, but just, you know, what practical difference would it mean to you as a real Christian today if you took Paul's warning seriously? What does Paul mean by dishonor God in verse 23? Are there, are there any ways that you, your life, in your business, in your neighborhoods, or anything that in your life is dishonoring to God. And, and so those unbelievers around you dishonor God. Paul uses even a strong word, blaspheme God, because of what they see in those who are professing believers. That's such a question that has to be asked. Paul, in the early part of this passage, you know, he, he said all this stuff about you know, those who have sinned with the law will perish with, uh, without the law, will perish without the law, and sinned under the law, be judged by the law. And it, 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 I, I've got to believe that this is one of those passages of Peter, the Apostle Peter was thinking about when, when he said, you know, writing his last letter in the last part of that, when he's greeting them and telling them that Paul agrees with him on what he says. And he said, and of course, some of Paul's writings are kind of hard to understand, kind of hard to deal with. Paul says, what he's saying here is, listen, no one's without excuse, religious, irreligious, pagan or, or, or religious person. If they're apart from Christ, if Christ is not Lord in their life, then they are living in a false hope. And I fear that many in the American church today are living in an absolute false hope. I mentioned on Wednesday night to the Bible study group in the prayer time that, that you know, uh, I've, been, I've been reading one of my favorite authors, a new, a new book that, or it's not a new book, it's an old book that he's redone. He wrote it in 1983, but he just came back out with another edition, changed the title and everything. That's a neat trick by authors. You know, I bought it in 1983 and read it, and then he puts a new title on it and puts it out, and I bought it again, only to find out it's the same book, just a little bit of addition. That's all right, because I love this author. Uh, name's Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness wrote a book entitled... In 1983, The Gravedigger File, which is kind of a weird title. The title of the new book is The Last Christian on Earth. And in that, the, uh, Guinness is, is kind of writing a spy novel. It's, it's almost along the lines of, of the screw tape letters. If you've read the screw tape letters, it's not a, a chief demon talking to one of his demon apprentices, but it's, but it's a spy novel, a, a group that's seeking to subvert the church, a group that is seeking to put secularism as the, as the God and secularism as the main religion. And, and they know they've got to, to do that. They've got to, they've got to subvert the church. They've got to destroy the church. They've got to do away with the church. And, and Oz Guinness, who was born in China uh, just before the Mao Zedong revolution that, that took over in China and, and tried to destroy Christianity, and we learned, as we have learned in just recent days or for several years, that when they threw everybody out, all the missionaries out in China, and the church began to be persecuted under intense 
intense, fiery persecution, death and imprisonment and all sorts of things. That little struggling church, when we had missionaries in there who were trying to build a church, had about 400,000 people at most in that billions of people in that continent. And when we went back in a few years ago, fearful that the church probably didn't even exist anymore, we went back in and we saw that now there were over 100 million believers in Christ. Persecution didn't work. As a matter of fact, persecution had an adverse effect from what the persecutors desired. Because under persecution, if you're a believer, you tend to start living what Christ taught. You tend to start living what Christ called us to, what Paul is talking about here. Not just having being hearers of the word, but knowing what it means as James said to be doers of the word in, in your daily life. But Os Guinness in this book, he he started talking about how he's trying to subvert the church and said there were four fa- uh, phases of, of uh, subversion that had to be carried out. He said the first stage is just penetration. He said we, we've been working for years with our spies to penetrate the church, not, not overtly, not, not loudly, not making a big deal, but just kind of, as he called it, worming in within among unbelievers, getting some of our people who really don't believe in Christ, who really, but to move in and kind of take a seat and take their place. The, the second stage is demoralization. And that can happen after some worming in takes place. And you look around and you see the culture and you say, boy, the culture's bad. We sure are glad we're not like that. And, and the worming in people just start saying, yeah, you know, we're good, glad we're not that way either. But let's just don't get involved. Let's don't do much about that. Let's let it lie. Then the third stage that comes in these gravedigger files is subversion, the winning over. It said in one of the files, said, we will never subvert all Christians, of course, but we do not need to do so. All we need is a passive acceptance of the corruption by the general body of Christians on the one hand and a positive allegiance to it from the other. Cultivated counter-elite on the other just trying to bring about this uh, subversion. And then finally, he says, the master spy who's running the show says, finally there will come uh, a, a defection. People will start looking to other things for their authority, to science as their authority, not to God's Word. Because even from within, people are saying, oh, you you can't believe that. Come on, that's so old. That's so out of touch. You've got to believe what's current. You've got to believe what's up to date. And and, and the spy says, you know, this final stage, which still lies ahead, is really the liberation of the mind or the taking over of the whole church. He says we have to subvert strength rather than trying to attack weaknesses. It's interesting. It's interesting. And, and he goes on to illustrate how that's taken place through the years. And I think he's got a point. In that, he spoke of the beauty of subversion through worldliness and its infinite superiority over persecution. When you persecute the church, bad things happen for those who want it to be destroyed. It grows, it multiplies, it matures. So subversion is so much better a clever idea than persecution because subversion is soft and gentle and kind and looks okay. And and he talked about, uh, again, it's talked about how the Christianization of Rome came about, you know? The Roman Empire and the Roman Church became one, the, the, and, and through uh, 
Constantine's mothers, there was the, the whole Christianization of the Roman Empire, and everybody, quote, became a Christian because they were citizens of Rome. And he said the Christianization of Rome led to the Romanization of the Christian faith and away from the way of Jesus. The Christianization of the Roman Empire brought about a Romanization of the Christian faith and away from the way of Jesus. He said also the Christianization of the modern world. The, the modern world's a part of, of, of Christians' doing. It's through Christians who, who discovered things uh, in the sciences and saw that as a way of seeing the glory of God. I, I still love uh, a guy I got to meet back in the 80s, and he's still teaching and still speaking and all by, by the name of Fritz Reidenauer, who is who is a, uh, a professor at, uh, at Georgia, University of Georgia. He's a, he's a quantum chemist, whatever that is. And, and he's got degrees from everywhere. He's a Nobel Prize nominee and all these. He's a brilliant man. And he's just the kind of guy you would think would say, there is no God. We have this all figured out. And, and Seth, Seth Fritz says over and over and over, no, 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 no. My joy as a quantum chemist is to day by day discover how God has done it we brought about Christianity brought about the modern world but the, the Christianization of the modern world is leading to the modernization of the Christian faith and thus away from the way of Jesus He makes one more statement. He says, the, similarly, we shall see the Christianization of America. How did America start? It started with some pretty strong Christian principles. I've, I've mentioned on Wednesday night, I don't know if you're here or not, but the, the, the monument to the founders, monument to the forefathers there in, in Plymouth, Massachusetts, that we saw back in July, a monument to... To, to the, found, the people who came here for religious freedom and faith is the top, uh, top person on the monument and faith is pointing toward heaven with one finger and holding a Bible in her hand, uh, uh, in her other arm. And then there's, there's law and there's, there's morals and morality and there's truth and all around that. Just uh, pointing to the fact that in the early days there was a great movement. We had the great awakenings led by George Whitfield and, and Jonathan Edwards in the Northeast, that, where the gospel spread like wildfire, and, and all of a sudden the colonies were, were turning to Christ. There were, there were awakenings in Kentucky, North Carolina, that spread throughout the region. And America sort of became Christianized. It was the right thing, and, and everybody thought, you've you got to profess to be a Christian, you've got to be in church, you've got to do this. Got to do that, and, and there became a, became a Christianization of America. But what has happened is, or what is happening is, in our own day and time, is what Paul is talking about here to the Romans, is, is that the, the Christianization of America has now led to the Americanization of the Christian faith. And away from the way of Jesus. Nothing troubles me more. I'm getting trouble here, I realize. This is not in the text, not in my text, so I'll 
face the music later. But nothing drives me, in, well, you know, a lot of things drive me crazy. And it's arguable that's just a short putt, I realize, not a drive. But nothing concerns me more than to see churches who have the American flag and the Christian flag on equal footing. Much worse, who have the Christian flag and the American flag with the American flag flying higher than the Christian flag. That is idolatry, pure and simple. That, that is wrong. I love America. I love my country. But my country is not greater than or higher than or more important than my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's just not. And you say, oh, they don't really mean it that way. They might not mean it that way, but let me tell you something. They present it that way. And Paul says, I want you to understand, I want you to understand this idea of a religion that is simply external and, and shows us is easily distorted into to any number of ways away from the way of Jesus. Then he goes on. In the second, that's just the first point of the sermon, by the way. There's the religious who think they have it all but have nothing because they don't have Christ. And, and then there's the ritualist. In verses 25 through 29, Paul says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. That is, if you've had a religious ritual and you obey the law perfectly, then you're in good shape. His implication here is that no matter how much religion, uh, no matter how much ritual, religious ritual you have, it, it, you can't obey the law perfectly, so the ritual is no basis for salvation. Circumcision is even valuable if you obey the law, but if you break the law, you're uncircumc your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, which he cannot ever do, but if he does, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically circumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Whew. Peter was right. Sometimes these things are hard to understand. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one who is inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit now be careful here that we don't say yeah those jews really were messed up be careful that we don't say yeah they had the law and they didn't they didn't live it because they couldn't really paul deal with that in chapter three but but they had the law, and they, they wanted to tell everybody else about the law and tell everybody else how to live, but they didn't apply it to themselves. That's a problem. There's also, there's those who have the ritual and, and treat the ritual as some kind of talisman or some kind of magical charm that, hey, I've got this. I'm right with God. I've got this. I'm okay. Just think. I ask you to do this on your... Uh, uh, faith talk when you go home and talk about this with your family. Well, what kind of things do you think we have today that, that are kind of like magical bullets or magical charms? I think you could change this quickly and just do a little paraphrase and contemporize it and not lose the meaning by taking the word circumcision put in the name, the word baptism. 
For baptism is indeed, is indeed a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your baptism becomes unbaptism. So if a man who is unbaptized keeps, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism? We go on and on and on. I mean, the point Paul is making there is that no ritual apart from a reality of a relationship with Christ is of any value. Ever. That's sometimes hard for us to hear in the 21st century church. It's hard for us to hear because we like the fact that, that, that while there was a Christianization of America, now the, the, the Americanization of the Christian faith is really kind of comfortable. The truth is, Paul is saying... And he'll get to this when he gets to justification by faith in chapter 3. But, but, but the real thing the Apostle Paul is saying here is you cannot put your trust in religion. You cannot put your trust in a ritual. You cannot put your trust in the fact you observed the Lord's Supper or you walked an aisle and you joined a church or you went through baptism or you go to Sunday school every Sunday or anything of the like. only hope is in Christ and his word and his truth being internalized in your life and when I say that I don't say in your life I point backwards in your life to me it's easy for a pastor to become very very pharisaical it's easy for the man who has the microphone every Sunday to say, do this and do that. Pray with me that God will never let me tell you before I first said, what is it saying to me? Because that's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying it not just to preachers, he's saying to every believer who desires to walk in faithfulness to Christ in a very, very difficult world, in a world where, where the, the spies are among us trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Trying to make it look like just a religious organization. Trying to make it look like just some, you know, half the, quote, spokesman for Christianity that I see on television embarrass the stew out of me. I mean, yesterday, in Charlottesville, Virginia, you had people bastardizing the name of Christ in the name of white supremacy. They had the cross. They, they claimed to be Christian America. Folks, they were no more Christian than your dog is. They're hate mongers. They are, they are self-centered, Satan-inspired haters. Christ did not condone anything that took place there yesterday and we as the church of jesus christ can't do it either because when we do that we just become modernized and americanized in a very 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 bad way southern baptist pastor this week coming on the tv and saying you know the scripture gives donald trump our president moral authority to take out kim jong-un 
doesn't. It, it, it gives him the moral right to bear the sword to protect the nation. It gives our government the moral sword. Not one man, no matter who he is. Now, I'm glad he's a little stronger than maybe in the past anybody ever has been. But he doesn't have the moral authority to, to just take out somebody. Neither do you. But you got Christian, a, a quote, Christian leader, embarrassingly a Southern Baptist, who takes the scripture from Romans 13, which is an absolutely true scripture. God gave government as, as an authority to bear the sword, both in capital punishment and in the sense of war. But it's to be borne very judiciously, very carefully, and very righteously. Not for retaliation, not for personal gain, but for that which bears the righteous truth of God. Paul is saying here, you've got to be careful. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you've got to be careful that you're just not being religious and you're not just depending on ritual, that your focus is, your pursuit of, your desire is to follow Christ completely. Nothing else. And we need to ask that every day. Every day. I need to ask that. Every day. Let's pray.